0: Hi, everybody. It's good to be with you. First Sunday of 2018. Um, I am looking forward to this week. <clears throat> um, lots of stuff going on, and I hope that as we maybe enter into this, uh, this idea of seven days of prayer and fasting, I know that some of you that may be uh, an easy thing to to step into, there are others that may be challenging, but I know it's probably for a lot of us exactly what we need, and we need to be challenged in this way and to step into something like this and and here's the deal, we are challenging you and encouraging you to start today and go to the next seven, but at the same time, it doesn't matter. If you, if you feel, if, it, if it's seven days, you know, starting later this week, we just really want to encourage you to be intentional for a week of seven days of intentional uh, seeking the Lord through prayer and fasting, and so we'll kind of give you the, the resources today and hopefully the encouragement today and, and, and just trust that the Lord will prompt you in the right ways to do that, and uh, uh, so we're excited about it. Um, you know, and a lot of us, I think, as the new year begins, we often think about this theme that we're talking a little bit about um, this week of the new self. You know, we've been saying at our house, kind of jokingly and sarcastically, new year, new you. I don't know if you say that, and it's like, oh, yeah, like, and but it's kind of sarcastic, but it's totally serious, you know, we're like, haha, new year, new year, nope, but seriously, pass the celery, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> that's kind of where we're at in life, and... And we want to take it a step further beyond what some of you have probably tried to do as the year begins with new healthy habits and new things that you're doing, and um, and to kind of think even a little deeper than that. And Caleb did a great job last week of kind of opening up this dialogue of, of, of thinking about not just our goals and our desires for 2018, but that the, in all those things, in everything that we do, that we need to seek the Lord first, and and, and what a, an incredible kind of perspective that we have to approach life with in such a way like that. And we're getting into this conversation today, as we just heard, by getting back into the book of Ephesians. And we're going to—we spent, prior to Christmas, the first uh, several weeks um, kind of covering the first three and a half chapters. Now we find ourselves at Ephesians 4, uh, 17. So if you have a Bible, you can, you can open to that. But what Paul did for much of the book so far, if you will remember, um, is he started talking a lot about how he's done two things. He's doing two things in this book. The first thing he does is, we have this amazing God. He's unbelievable. He's, he's, he's incredible. And, and, and we have to remember this. And Paul just goes on and on about the goodness of God. And then he says, oh, and by the way, he's blessed you. He's made you an heir. Um, there's all sorts of wonderful things about you, too. And so he's like building up the, the God and, and the church and you. And then, and then he sort of turns the corner in chapter four. If you remember, right before Christmas, we talked about this. And he said, therefore, if all this is true, If you believe in Jesus, if you believe that God is as good as I'm saying he is, that God is an incredible, loving, forgiving God, if you believe all this and you believe the gospel is for you, well, then it has some implications. Therefore, it means something into who you ought to be. And and so Jesus in your life is going to mean something. It's going to mean all sorts of things. And this is what Paul starts to talk about in chapter four, and he says, he talks about the church, and he talks about how the church ought to be, and how we ought to be the best church that we can, and and then all at the same time, he says, you and your life, there's some things that you're going to have to pay attention to, so on that point, um, let's get to the scriptures, shall we? Ephesians four, verse 17, says this, so I tell you this, and insist on it, so this is how he begins, (laughs) like this is a big deal, I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, again, everybody probably heard, I've explained it many times, but Gentiles is any, referring to any person that doesn't follow Jesus. He says, don't live like them anymore. You understand that? Like, don't live like people who don't follow Jesus. How many times do we read books of people who don't follow Jesus and we take their advice? You know what I'm saying? This is kind of what he's saying. Don't live like them. Like, start looking at Jesus for the way you're going to live. This is where he begins, I insist on it. And then he goes on, don't live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking, which futility is a strong word. It's like ineffective, meaningless, pointless. He's like in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts, which I think you read that, it seems harsh, but how many people have hardened their heart against the Lord, and they're just—they're just, they're just not—they don't really get it. That's what he's saying. They just do not get what those of us who have Jesus in our heart get. They just don't. He says, having lost all sens- sensitivity, these people have lost all sensitivity. They have given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, as they are full of greed. They, again, does this remind you of the world? People who just say whatever pleases me is okay. I'm going to give over to whatever the flesh tells me that I want, I'm gonna do, and this is what's going on. And then he says, that, however, is not what you learned. That's not the way of life that you learned. Once you, once you when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that was in Jesus, you were taught with regard, re, with regard in the former way of life and you, you understood your old way of life that you were supposed to put it off. You're supposed to not be like the Gentiles. You're supposed to put off the old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes and to put on the new self created to be like God, to be like Jesus in true righteousness and holiness. So I was thinking about this passage, like how do you start to kind of boil this down? What is a simple way to look at this? I was thinking about it as I was preparing for this, of course, and a one word came to mind, like this is what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about change. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about change. He's talking about changing from an old way of life to a new way of life. He's talking about changing the way you think and the way you live. Change is an interesting subject, isn't it? Like, in our world, like, there's a lot of change going on. How many of us agree with the sentiment that change is inevitable? Anybody? Just a few. The rest of us think the world is static. It is not changing. We've arrived. No. The change is... Change is inevitable, right? The world is rapidly changing around us. And I was thinking about how how many people dedicate so much of their time to the process of change, just even in the area of professions, right? The professions that we have in our world, whether you're a construction, in the world of construction, or you're a doctor, or you're a teacher, or you're an urban planner, or a therapist, or a personal trainer, or a dentist, right? All those things are about change. They're about changing something for us as people are changing the environment around us and how much of our society is really dedicated to change. And a lot of us would say that we, are, that we really like change, but when someone asks you, you to change, it becomes different, doesn't it? And all sorts of uh, excuses and uncertainties come up and a lot of us say we like change, but most of us are slow to actually change ourselves. We're very slow to change us. Maybe we, like, maybe we say we like change, and what we mean by that is we like to change like our living room, you know what I mean, the furniture arrangement. and We went from traditional feng shui or something like that, right? And we say we like change, but all we're doing is changing what's around us. We're not really changing us at all. And so is that really change whenever we're just changing what's around us? So today, um, I'm going to tackle a few questions, and one of them is, how does a person change? And... To get into that, I want to talk about science. Seems like a bit of a right turn, I know. Stay with me on that. Um, Science in its purest form is a system of analyzing data or data. Tomato, tomato, right? Analyzing data and, uh, and, and facts in order to draw conclusions about how things are. Isn't that essentially science, right? And for example, psychology is the science of the human psyche. And what happens in psychology is you can, you can determine, they can determine why you feel the way you feel or maybe to think the way you think. And so, for example, they could say, oh, this person, uh, they can determine why you feel angry or why you feel lonely or why you feel some sort of uh, other emotion, right? They, they can explain the whys in it and it can point to one's upbringing or it can point to parenting styles that have kind of produced different types of children or it can, it can it can even point to learning styles that we have and, and how we, have, some of us are workaholics or some of us are, um, you know, just have a really high view of ourselves or a low view of ourselves, right? And, and psychology is the study of, of answering why, why we think the way we think and how we think the way we think. And, and that's what science is. But as soon as you change the dialogue to talk about how you ought to change and, and maybe what you ought to do in life, Well, you leave the the realm of science and you enter into a, a dialogue in the world of faith and belief systems. Because science has no right to tell you how you ought to live. It only can tell you why things are the way they are. That's what science is, right? And so when something leaves into how you ought to change, well, it becomes something different. It becomes opinion or it becomes a faith system or a belief system. And I'm not necessarily saying a Christian belief system, but a belief system in and of itself. And so science can tell you and inform you of the facts, but it can't tell you how to live. It can't tell you how you should change. It can't tell you if you should think about yourself or you should think about others better than yourselves. It can't tell you if you should have sex outside of marriage or if it tell you if you should get drunk, right? Those are values-based decisions that have nothing to do with the way things are. So many people, you're like, where are we going? Stay with me. Many people point to science in their answers to the origin of life and therefore the meaning of life. And they say things like, we came from nothing, but yet we've somehow evolved over time into the sophisticated world we live in, and there is no supreme authority governing all this. However, even though we came from nothing and we returned to nothing, uh, we have a responsibility to one another. Isn't Isn't that sort of strange thinking? Where's the logic in that? Hey, by the way, We came from nothing. There's no ultimate supreme authority in life. Yet humanity has a responsibility to one another to be humane morally. Why? Why would we have a responsibility to anything if we had no moral compass or no moral center? Why would there be any reason to love one another or to do anything good in this world if there's nothing that's actually the origin of everything? Do you know what I'm saying? And so this makes absolutely no sense. This is what you would call futile thinking. So what I'm describing actually is secular humanism. Secular humanism, and I know I'm getting a little scientific on you this morning, but secular humanism is essentially the belief, and it's a belief system that claims no absolute truth, however, asserts that all sorts of things ought to be for humanity. So there's a lot of ought to be's in secular humanism, yet there's no absolutes. So secular humanism would say we ought to love one another. We ought to celebrate and appreciate the world. We ought to have a lot of parties, right? We ought, we ought to maybe occasionally buy coffee for the person behind us at Starbucks. We ought to do that. That's what secular humanism says, right? We, we, I have a watch, right, that tells me when to stand. Do you know what I'm talking about? It, it, if I haven't stood enough in an hour, it says you need to get up, and I go, oh, I guess I better get up. And, and I'm just believing that if I stand up, that in a few months I'm gonna have the beach body that I just believe I should have by purely standing. And it's so interesting, the things that we give authority in our life, as, as if there's so many things that should tell us who we ought to be, and we listen to them, whether it be a watch, or whether it be science, or whether it be other things, and they really have no right to tell us who we ought to be, because they're just, they have no logical sense. There's no reason why it's telling me to stand up unless it has a belief about standing, doesn't it? unless it's believing that standing is actually going to result in something better, well, then it's no longer just about my whys, but it's about who you ought to be. It's no longer about why you're unhealthy. Because science can tell me all that, but it can't tell me who I ought to be. So why, why am I saying this? Um, by the way, one theologian sarcastically says about secular humanism, sort of a joke, says, we descended from apes, therefore love one another. No, no sense, right? It doesn't make any sense. But that's essentially what it's saying. So, what am I saying? And what what is more importantly, what is the scripture saying? And what has the scripture been saying over and over and over and over and over and over again? Well, essentially, in the New Testament, it's saying this: it's saying we ought to, we ought to, we ought to live like Christ. We ought to become like Christ. And I know that seems very simple, but this is what this is what's going on. This is what ought to be. This is what should guide us and direct us. And and. We should be doing all we can to change, if you will, anything that does not like him. Anything that isn't, be, it, there's no excuses, if you will, and and it's incredibly clear in the scriptures what we ought to be doing. And the world of science, if you will, and secular humanism, um, it's really what I like to call maybe for today just worldly living. It has no right to tell you anything, and because nothing is guiding that, and it, it's fleeting, and it can change. What the world said 20 years ago is different from what the world's saying today about who you ought to be. And, and there's something, though, about this, about what Paul's saying and about what Scripture says that I think is really what ought to be for your life. And so when we're talking about change, we're talking about what ought to be, aren't we? I, I told this story a few years ago, um, maybe three four years ago. and So some of you have heard it, but it's worth repeating. It's about, it's about a guy who's an American diplomat um, from the United States. Uh, to the Soviet Union during, uh, one, if you guys remember, during the Cold War, and, and his role was really uh, kind of negotiating, if you will, a lot of really important things, and he had, he, I heard him give a speech about seven or eight years ago that he called the power of the odd. It was a nine-minute speech, and it was one of the most transformative speeches I've ever heard in nine minutes, and he talks about how there's the power of the ought has changed the world for centuries, and he believes that the power of the yacht in this particular case that he had been dealing with for years was that we should be a world free of nuclear weapons. This guy's name was Max Kappelman, he was 93 years old when I heard him give this speech. He gave this speech and he said, you know, during the 60s, 70s, 80s, I would go to the Soviet Union and I would not try to appease them, but I would try to convince them that what ought to be is a world free of nuclear technology, nuclear weapons. Sounds kind of crazy. But then he goes on and he talks about how the power of the atom has changed the world for centuries, and societies for centuries and centuries and centuries. He goes on and says, you know, the Declaration of Independence was when it was written, it was a bunch of dreams of what ought to be, but it was so far from reality. He says, all the dreams they wrote about in the Declaration of Independence, they weren't even close to the real situation they were dealing with. He said, they wrote this about what ought to be, and then now, centuries later, they've done studies to kind of, kind of probe into what are, the, what, are the, what are the characteristics of the fabric of our nation? What are the, what are the themes that, people, that resonate within people deeply? And, and what they found is all the themes that are within the, the Declaration of Independence are what kind of resonates within Americans. And, and he's saying, see, the power of the ought changed it. The, the power of the ought is the difference between what ought to be and what is. And just because it isn't doesn't mean you shouldn't care about what ought to be. And there's so many things about your life that you should be saying, what ought to be about me? What? Who should I be becoming, so to speak? And shouldn't that compel me to something? Shouldn't that compel me to change? And this is what Paul's talking about. Shouldn't that, shouldn't that, shouldn't that drive me to some sort of conclusion that i must change. So let's go back to the crux of this passage, verse 22. It says you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and instead let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes and to put on the new self created to be like God, to be like Jesus. So i want to i want to do something this one. I want to show you this passage a little bit visually. And you can go to this next one here and, and we got essentially this going on, don't we? We have this old self and we have a new self. And, and Paul says the new self is only found in Christ. When we find Christ, we find a new self. And there is a very obvious gap between the two. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, you're like, hey, this reminds me very much of the bridge illustration. It, it is and isn't, okay? Just stay with me. But the gap is this, that we are going to change from the old self to the new self. This is what ought to be happening in our life, right? So what's happening is to, there's a change happening in us if we're in Christ at least there should be one happening. How do we become more like Christ? Now, for a lot of us, the picture of the new self is, you know, maybe we think it's, you know, some sort of glorified version of ourself. Like, for me, it's like, this is who I am in the old self, and in the new self, I'm like Tom Brady or something. I don't know. <laughs> but, but it's not really that, is it? It's something different. And, and Paul gives some descriptors, if you will, of what the old self and the new self is. And I read 17 through 24, but these are some of the things he said about the new self and old self. He said, he said the old self is, is impure, it's greedy, it's full of deceitful desires. And the first thing he says about the new self is in verse 24 when he says the new self is becoming like Jesus, becoming like God. And so this, that's just what he starts with. And then he goes on, I'm going to read a few more verses here, verses 25 through 32, where he continues to define the old self or the new self. Actually, what, what we're doing today is actually really, um, really transformational, if you will, if you allow it to be, all right? Uh, Starting in verse 25, it says, Therefore, each of you must put off... So he's starting to talk about the difference, once again, between the old self and the new self. Must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down even while you are angry. Husbands, wives, how are you doing with that one? And do not give a devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. A lot of us don't think we're thieves, but we steal more than we think. But we must work doing something useful with their own hands and that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up and according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, but get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, among, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave. You so he adds to the list a little bit, doesn't he? And so if you start to look at this, it's more like, oh, you're also a, the old self is a liar. It's full of anger and and stealing and unwholesome talk and uh, bitterness, rage, fighting and malice. And over here he says uh, the new self is not only like Jesus but truthful, sharing with those in needs, building others up, encouraging speech, kindness, compassion, forgiving he starts to give a picture that this is who you ought to be becoming. And for a lot of us, we're saying, that's who, that's who I'm trying to become. I, I'm, I'm moving that way. I'm trying to get there. But I realize that I'm in this process of change, and, and I realize that it's like not going to happen overnight. And, and, and this thing's kind of, the old self tries to stay alive and strong. Is anybody with me? The old self is like trying to, it's like fighting for its life, isn't it? Are you with me? So this is who we ought to be. In this passage, Paul says a couple things, though. He says there's two things that you got to do, and there's one thing God's going to do. And the thing that he says that you're going to do is you're going to put off and you're going to put on. That's what he says you're going to do, and me and I'm going to do. And then he said, and here's what God's going to do. He's going to renew our minds. Through the Spirit, he's going to renew our minds and our attitudes. And so it looks a little bit like this, and there's sort of a bridge, if you will, between the two, in which this gap is actually filled by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to renew our minds. right? And we'll get into that in a moment, but let's talk about this thing that we're supposed to do that we're supposed to put off and put on. You ever found people that have emphasized one versus the other? Like some people really think about putting off. You can't do one without the other. They, they go together, right? But there's people that kind of emphasize the putting off. You ever seen churches or people that emphasize the putting off piece? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where they where they think about, if you will, the things that, that they want to get rid of and maybe they emphasize behaviors that separate themselves from, if you will, uh, the things that would make them impure. So this is... Maybe this doesn't sound bad, but this is dangerous territory when all you're focused on is putting off. When all you're doing is saying we have to take off this and take off that and take off that and and stay away from that because what this does is it it actually breeds a mentality, we're talking about the the minds here in just a moment, it breeds breeds a mentality of fear. You you know what I mean by this? Because what happens is then you start to fear anything that's gonna come in and, and threaten the impurity of what you're trying to build. And so people, if you've ever noticed that live in legalistic sort of settings or have maybe legalistic tendencies, they have a lot of fear about them because anything that would come and actually threaten holiness or purity becomes, like I said, a threat. And therefore, they push themselves away from it, withdraw from it. Are you with me? And then what happens is, is they create this environment, that fear that feels like judgment. But then there's the other side of the fence where people that only focus on putting on right? They only focus on doing more good things. And so they do acts of justice and service. And what they do in that is they justify their lives by the things they do. And they don't put much attention on the behaviors that they have or the habits that they have. And what that creates is a a sense of hypocrisy. Because then what's going on is the person is abusing the grace of God and justifying themselves through their own actions. Are you with me? You see how we can emphasize putting off or putting on, and if we do that, we can either create a fear kind of based life that that ends in looking like judgment to the world, or we can live a life that seems to be too abusive for the grace of God, in which we aren't actually changing and transforming. We're just becoming better people, therefore, secular humanists. Okay. So Paul says, You got some things to do. You gotta put off and you gotta put on. But you're not gonna do this alone. You know what? I'm going to come, and I'm going to do my part. I'm going to change the way you see the world. I'm going to give you new eyes. I'm going to give you a new mind, and I'm going to change you. And that's where the Spirit works in our minds and our attitudes. So that's when you go to prayer, and you say, God, will you help me out of my, this pit that I'm in? Will you help me through the sin that I'm in with my anger, my greed, my, my lust, my selfishness? And you start praying these things. And, and, and you kind of enter into a next season. You go to the next slide. In which... You're taking off, and Paul uses other language, other parts, right, where he says you're taking off your old clothes, and then you're changing clothes, aren't you? So there's a season of nakedness. There's a season in which you're exposed before God, in which you are completely have to be vulnerable and exposed and say, God, you're going to see me exactly the way I am in my wretchedness and my sin and all the things that I don't want to tell anybody else about, but I'm going to confess them to you. I'm going to confess them to you, and I'm going to ask, Lord, that you would forgive me, and I'm going to ask that you would change my mind, and that you would change the way I see the world, and change my my desires and my dreams, that you would change some things in me. And so you would come vulnerable and honest and naked before the Lord, and you say, I need your spirit to change me. And here's the thing, here's the thing, we, there's a part that God does, and there's a part that we do, right? And I think so often, a lot of us think, man, I need to get my life right with God. And so we start working really hard and we start taking off and putting on and taking off and putting on. and We're like trying to do all this and we think we can do it by our own power, but then we never go to the Lord in prayer. We never go to fast. We never do anything like that with any real effort. And we basically believe we can pursue the Lord by ourselves, absent of God. And we don't allow the bridge to happen and all we're trying to do is basically leap from one side to the other and we keep falling short. Are you with me? So, We also sometimes can sit around and say god do you just change me change me like change me right now god and we don't put any effort in and we're just like i'm ready god like zap me you know what i mean and we expect god to do all the work and that's not the way it works it's like no 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 it says in philippians 2 that you will work out your salvation implying a couple different things one that you're going to work and two that god's going to work in you and give you the desire to even work who do you think gives you the diligent heart to work god And so God is going to put in us a spirit to do what we got to do. And he said, but I will be faithful too to do what I'm going to do. I'm the only one that can transform. I'm the only one that can renew and change. You can do the effort to get yourself there and I will meet you there. This is what's going on in the scripture. So why we say all this is and why we're doing even what we're doing this week is we believe this happens in prayer. That you can only see this transformation and change happening in prayer. And I'm talking big picture, but a lot of you right now, if I said, what do you need to change about your life right now? What do you need to change about your life to be more, become more like Christ? You could get there pretty quickly in some things. And it's only going to happen, one, when you start doing whatever it takes to, to change, but also two, because by the way, putting off, putting off means you're going to do whatever it takes to change the things that are not like Jesus. And I just want to, I mean, how many of us actually do that? How many of us are doing whatever it takes, things that we have the power to change that are not like Jesus? How many of us are really actively saying, I'm going to put that off, I'm going to put that off? And then putting on means doing the things that God says to do. So I'm going to do the things that are, I'm going to change the things and put off the things that are not like becoming like Jesus, and I'm going to put on the things that God says to do. I mean, sometimes this is so simple, it's really frustrating, isn't it? It's like, God, why do I not do this? And then then what? And then the Holy Spirit says, you know what, I'm going to do my part. And I'm going to change your mind about the way you see things. So this week, the reason we ask you to pray and fast is because we believe at first it happens through prayer that we start to allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and to change your mind. And the reason we say to fast, if you've never fasted, one of the most basic um, scriptural, if you will, values of fasting is to fight against temptation. Because here's what's happening. Is, old self is always trying to tempt you back, to pull you back, Right? And, and, and Jesus himself, what did he do? He fasted for 40 days. He goes into the desert. The t- devil tempts him. It prepares him for, the, for the, the strongest temptation he would ever face in his life. He overcomes that temptation, and it prepares him for the ministry that he's about to do. And he goes on, and he encourages believers and his, those who are discipling to continue to fast. And I believe part of that reason is because he wants to help them continue to transform in the old self, from the old self to the new self. And he knows that when we deprive ourselves of food, we start to do things to our bodies in which we say flesh will not win. You know what I'm saying? I, can, I am not going to allow flesh to control me. Then I'm going to allow the spirit. And flesh will not control my, my, not only temptation, but my desires. Instead, the spirit will control me. Instead, what, what God wants to do in me is what's going to control me. And this is where fasting is sort of a great practice. And I've done all sorts of fasts over the years. I've done one day, two days. And so I don't know if you want to do that. Maybe you want to do a meal. I've even done longer fasts that are, you know, 20-something days or whatever. Right? And so every time it happens, I'm just telling you, it's not like some magical breakthrough occurs. That's not what we're trying to get at. But what I learn is what it, the value of saying, I'm gonna discipline my body, I'm gonna beat my body and make it my slave. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9? I love that passage about disciplining yourself and your flesh. He says, I'm gonna beat my body and make it my slave so that I will not be disqualified from the prize. Right? This is what he says. And so maybe for you you're gonna say, I want to do this because I want to learn the practice depending on the spirit, seeking the Lord through fasting, fighting against the flesh to overcome temptation. Because here's what happens is we get trapped in the old self and we have to fight our way out of it. We have to put off the things. So this week, we encourage you to do that, but I want to give you one more word because I know a lot of you are like, Tim, this is great. I totally get it, but you don't understand. I've been fighting this old self thing forever. Some of you are like, I'm doing really good with the Lord, but there are like two things, two things on my list that I've just sort of given up on. You with me? Come on, are you with me? There's like things that you like, I mean I know it's a big deal but I, just, I don't really work on that one anymore. It's just kinda, it's one of those things I just can't seem to beat it. I, I know that a lot of us have these issues that we wanna change but we just don't feel like we can or we've tried many times and I wanna put one more word on the screen for you. All right, and it's imagination. So maybe another way to say, renew your minds, is to say, what if we... Well, what captures your imagination? And what if you change your imagination? You see, the imagination is a powerful thing. Think about it this way. Let's imagine something, shall we? Um, let's imagine that someday you go to the doctor. Someday you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, you are no longer allowed to eat steak because the steak is really bad for your heart. Some of you are like, that's okay, I don't like steak anyway. But a lot of, a lot of us, like me, we are like meat and potato people. That would be a devastating day, wouldn't it? No more steak for the rest of my life? What, are you kidding me? I mean, they've already taken gluten, now they're going to take my steak? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's what's going on in this world. So, so here's the problem, though. Every time you get around steak, you start to imagine how much you like steak. You're like, man, is so good. And you start to imagine it, and there's imagination happening in your mind about what you believe about steak. And you believe steak is good, and so what happens is eventually, if you continue to believe, even though the doctors told you it's bad, your imagination tells you it's good. What eventually happens? Eventually, you will, you will submit to the imagination, and you will probably try. You'll risk it and say, "I'm going to go for the steak." Maybe you won't go whole, like you know, 12 oz T-bone. You know what I'm saying? That's ounce. Maybe you won't do that. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're not going to know Philip Mignon, right? You're not, you're not going the full, but you're like, just give me a little taste, a little nibble, a little bite, and so you're like eating off someone else's plate. You know what I'm saying? And you eventually give in to what your imagination tells you is good. This is the same thing that happens with all sorts of other sexual immorality, versions of gluttony, versions of lust, right? You think your mind is telling you it's good, and you eventually give into it. What if your imagination was changed and instead of you imagining how great the stake is, you imagined yourself every time you even came near a stake, falling over, left arm lamp, beating your chest, heart attack, right? Like that's what came to your mind. And that's what it means to have a transformed imagination to where you would actually see the old way of life for what it really is, that it's life stealing, that it's empty and lonely, that it leaves you lost, and that it is futile. And that you would actually see the ways of Jesus, the new life that he's promised, the things that he says in his words as the thing that's actually life-giving and the thing that's actually more desirable and the thing that is actually full of love and compassion and forgiveness. And it is much, much better. And what if your imagination for the things that would be considered your old self became things that were more like, no, that's gonna kill me. And so the only way that this is gonna actually happen is God has to renew our minds. He has to give us a renewed spirit and a, new, a renewed attitude in our minds. And this is where, again, we have this process of saying, what if I go to the prayer and I start saying, okay, God, I know who I ought to be. I know who I ought to be. You've laid it out. And I've tried to put off and put on, and I'm going to continue to do what I'm supposed to do, but Lord, I'm going to go to you in prayer more honestly and vulnerably. I'm going to ask you to renew my mind and my imagination. Doesn't that sound different for so many of us? This is what Paul's saying. So how do you change? You put off. And so many of us want real change, but we never really put off. And you put on. And what the scriptures offer. And this go across this bridge. and these are, the, these are the changes, I think. There are changes, if you will. There are changes that you need to make. I know there are. And if we're talking about what ought to be, the power of the ought in your life for're talking about what ought to be shouldn't we just say it this way even doesn't what ought to be well doesn't, doesn't God deserve everything from us? I mean, not to get too big here, but just for a moment doesn't He deserve our very best and our very first doesn't God deserve that? I mean God created you, right? like you're here right now, you're breathing because of because of God I sort of see it like this I, I, Kind of wrapping up here, but sort of imagine a, a little bit of a scenario with me, if you will. Imagine that you hear a story about a kid, right? And he's a kid that's in a desperate situation. And he's, he's a kid that, if, if no one helps him, he's, he's in a foreign land, he's, 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 he's got no parents in his life, and, and if someone doesn't help him, he's probably... More than likely, everybody believes he's going to be sold into some form of human trafficking and slavery. And you're like, you hear this story and your heart goes out to him. And so you feel like something's got to be done. And so you go over to this foreign country, right? And you, and you fight through the red tape and you, you go and do whatever you got to do. And you spend all sorts of money. In fact, you spend all you have to win this kid, to save this child. And you finally fight through all the corruption and you, and you adopt this child. And then you, you come home, you got nothing left, you spent all you had, and you make this child a part of your family. And then, kid's been there three months or so, two, three months, and says, hey, I, I don't know, I don't know if I'm really liking this. I was really wanting a TV in my room, and I don't have one. Um, you know, if we don't get that fixed, I think I'm, I think I'm just gonna go try this on my own, I'm gonna leave. As, as the person who did everything for this kid, I mean, how, how does, what do you do, right? In this moment, you're, you're probably all sorts of emotions. You're like, you wanna say, don't you understand what I've done for you? Don't you, under, you probably wouldn't say this, but you're, don't you understand what you owe me? And if you don't say that, you say, but you don't understand if you go out there on your own, you're not gonna make it. You're just not gonna make it without me. You don't know this country, you're 12 years old, you're not gonna make it. Don't you understand that this, this is very much the story of us and God. We are in the same situation. I mean, we look at all he's done, right? Look at all he's done. You didn't ask to be created, yet you're here. You didn't ask to have the talents you have, yet you have them. Uh, he keeps you alive every second, essentially. And then in return, we say, yeah, we know we owe you everything, God, but um." I don't know if I'm really ready to change that. And in fact, my life isn't really all that great. And Sometimes I just kind of wish I had a better TV, right? And, and we find ourselves sort of complaining and sort of focusing on the wrong things in life. And, and, and we don't focus on what ought to be. We focus on other things. We focus on the flesh. We focus on the old self and the things that will bring us pleasure. And we're not really thinking about what ought to be anymore. And we're, we're not thinking about what we even owe God. So in this little story, like, what does the kid deserve, right? I mean, even if, maybe he's very adamant about this. He's leaving. He's putting his foot down. And as a parent, you would have every right to say, you know what? If you want that, just go. See how it works out. Just go. And and all I can say is I'm so thankful that God has never given given us what we deserve. I'm so thankful, because if he did, he would just leave us and say, go go try. You want to go? make your own decisions. You want to be your own God? Go, go right ahead. See how it works out. I promise you, if he did that, and he did that to us, and he did that to the people who are still fighting against him, if he just left them on their own, we would all be goners. That's just the way it is. It wouldn't work. But instead, he continues to hold out his hands, even to those who continue to reject him. and says, you know what? I'm still here for you. I'm still offering you a new life. I'm still offering you the life that you ought to be living. And for those of us who are saying yes to that, he's still saying, yeah, but but there's, there's more. There's more change. There's more transformation that should, ought to be taking place. And, and, and he's like, I want this for you. He doesn't do that. And the more you realize that God has never given you what you deserved. And don't think you deserve much when I say that, right? That God has never given you what you deserved. I believe the more we realize then who we ought to be. It takes almost realizing and understanding how much we owe God to realize who we ought to be. And then the the more we want to change in that scenario. When we know who we ought to be, then the more we want to change. And you decide, you know what, I'm going to start putting off the old and putting on the new. And you start going into places of prayer, praying something like this. Say, God, will you help me? Will you help me with this sin that is really, really embarrassing? You see, so many of us are so afraid to be embarrassed that we never say anything out loud, not even to God. We'll never be embarrassed to another person. You know what? Here's the deal. Maybe this is the week it's time for you to just actually feel your sin and the shame of it. A willingness to be embarrassed to know, though, that God wants to see you exactly as you are and he has a better better life for you. But maybe it's saying, God, okay, I just want to come to you, and I want, I, want to, I want to be vulnerable. I want to be real and honest about everything, about my old self that I'm not letting go, the flesh that I continue to pursue, the materialism that seems to have gripped me, the, the, the pride or the ego or the lust. A lot of men in here struggle with that. Women, too. And I want to not only confess it, but I need you to transform my mind in the way I think that I would see that as life depleting and stealing and killing and that, Lord, you have something more for me. Would you change my imagination? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like change is not just, hey, go work harder, guys. Put off and put on more. No, 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 no. It's going into, the, it's going into prayer and it's saying, God, I, I can't do this on my own. If I do it on my own, I'm just gonna fail. I'm gonna fall short once again. But God, I'm not asking you to do all the work because you've, you've given me the abilities to do the work with you. That Lord, with the spirit together, Lord, you've given me the ability to overcome and to become new. To become a new self. And this is what Paul's essentially saying. Obviously, we said a lot more, but we've tried to put it in our life and in our today's world. And this is what's going on for so many of us is we have never really, really, entered into a picture of understanding the old self with the new self and understanding the work of the Holy Spirit to actually get us there. So God, will you help me with the sin? Right? That's what we pray. And we pray, God, not only will you help me with the sin, but I I acknowledge that I owe you everything in my life. And and I and I love everything about you, God. And because I love you in such a profound way, Lord, I I want to become the person that I ought to be. I think if we begin praying prayers like that, we'll start putting that old self behind us and we'll have a new way of seeing the world with new dreams and new imaginations about a better life and a better way of living. So, let's pray together, shall we? Father, I pray that as we take a few minutes even as we run short on them to reflect on what we've talked about here today. And as a way of, uh, I'm just talking to you now just with your heads bowed, as a way of sort of responding and simply this. Um, if today you would say, I definitely am already hearing the Lord speaking about things that I need to put off and put on. If you're already feeling that right now, would you just lift your hand and say, yeah, I'm there, I'm already there. It's good. Well, this is this is the week to do it and and we're going to sing just for a couple minutes. But you may feel compelled to even come and pray right now with a person or at the altar about that thing that God is speaking to you about and I want to encourage you to do that. We're going to stay right in this moment as long as God allows us to, okay? Don't leave yet and just listen to what the Lord's saying, Father. I pray that you would compel us by your spirit to respond in a way right now that says, "Lord, we want to be vulnerable before you and honest before you and we want to start with a fresh vision of what you want for each and every one of us as individuals and as a, as a church community. Lord, we love you. We pray for all these things in your name.